Friends and visitors, a warm welcome to you all. I'm pleased to see so many present here tonight, and um, I believe that it promises to be a very thought-provoking and poignant evening. When I was first approached by James Dealey, who asked me to chair this evening's seminar, there was a sense of thrill, coupled with much trepidation. Why, you might ask? Tonight's guest speaker is not only the most passionate, most articulate, and most captivating Activating activist on LGBT global rights that I have ever had the pleasure of coming across. He's also a very dear friend. We first met in 2004 when he joined Islington as the head of the Equality Unit and he was also my manager. We quickly developed an endearing friendship where I learnt about the enduring commitment this man has given to the equality and diversity agenda and worthy related causes such as HIV and AIDS and felt deeply moved by his pain, his determination and the drive he has shown over the years as he recounted some of his personal experiences growing up within the black community and his encounters in a professional capacity during his time in the workplace. He has now written an autobiography entitled God's Other Children, a London memoir, which I have not yet had the pleasure of reading owing only to time, but which I have been told, quite surprisingly, I feature in. No doubt he will unfold extracts from it tonight, and I wait with as much excitement as you do to find out more. Honesty, integrity and a whole lot of laughter is what you find at the core of Vernal Scott. The facade gives an aura of authority and a sense of pride, and quite rightly so, because he has a lot to be proud of, and I am both honoured and proud to be here tonight to confirm that on his behalf. Thank you, Spectrum, our LGBT staff network, and Embrace, our, our BME staff network, for hosting this event and for asking me to chair it. Friends, it is with, with great pleasure to give you Vernal Scott. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, <laughs> I don't usually need a microphone, um, but hey. Um, thanks to Carolyn, to Andrew, and to James for the invitation. Um, in writing the book, um, God's Other Children, a London Memoir, um, a number of requests have come through for me to, you know, like tonight, to come out and, and talk about HIV and AIDS. It's usually World AIDS Day. That, that people, you know, call you up and wheel people like me out. Um, and I suppose what, you know, one of the first things I, I have to say is, is that every day is World AIDS Day, really, for, for people who are directly affected. Um, what I'd like to do is, as, as in, in the theme of reflections and looking back, is to um, go back and have a look at the journey that we've had um, with HIV and AIDS and, um, and to talk about where we are today um, as well. So um, there'll be an opportunity um, at the end to ask questions and hopefully we can ask each other questions um, and have answers as well to any queries that we might have about HIV and AIDS. Just some, some stats to, to begin with. Um, as of today, um, there are 35 million people living with HIV. Um, 3.3 million of them are under 15 years old. Um, in 2012, there were 2. 3 million new, newly diagnosed, um, people newly diagnosed with HIV AIDS, and of them, uh, 260,000 um, were HIV, uh, sorry, were uh, under 15 years old. Every day, approximately 6,000 people become newly infected with HIV. Um, that's nearly something like 260 an hour. So far, 
um, sorry, in 2012, 1.6 million people died in 2012 um, to HIV-related symptoms. Um, and 210,000 of them were under 15 years old. To date, there are 75 million people worldwide have contracted HIV, and the total death toll so far is 35 million people. The United Kingdom, obviously, is part of the world, and um, the statistics here, um, so far we've had 22,000 deaths to uh, people of people um, diagnosed with HIV and HIV-related conditions. Um, there's currently about 75,000 people thought to be, well, known rather, to be living with HIV, and a further 25,000 who are thought to be living with HIV but don't know that they are. About seven, 750 million pounds is spent each year on the care and treatment of people living with HIV in the United Kingdom alone. Um, in a past life, I was head of HIV services for the London Borough of Brent. And it was in the 80s and 90s, you know, when um, my experience was that it was a, a conveyor belt of death and dying. It was a, a, almost a, certainly a weekly experience to be going to somebody's funeral, and I was quite young then. Um, but I was burying people who were younger than my, myself back then, and, and obviously older as well. And, um, and, and it struck me <coughs> that if there's a, a virus that is an equal opportunity virus, it's, it's this one. You know, it's affected people of all ages, races, nationalities, languages, you name it, economic class. Um, nobody escaped it. Um, and as you will hear, that didn't prevent certain people from pointing fingers and um, apportioning blame. AIDS is that huge illness with, a, with that little name, you know, and I, and I want to go behind, you know, the acronym and, and, and explain a little bit about what goes on there. Um, so in my professional life and, and ultimately in my, in my personal life, HIV and AIDS became a reality, and, I, and if we're not careful, we get caught up in all these statistics to the point that we forget that behind them are ordinary men, women, and children, real people who are um, living or were living with HIV and AIDS. Personally, I can remember friends like Mervyn, Raymond, Ian, John, Colin, Paul, Graham, Louis, Trevor, Winston, Karen, Richard, Charles, Nigel, Jeff, Warwick, Peter, Jody, Stefan, Derek, just my own list of people who came to mind as I was preparing for, for this. And I also remember a woman called Margaret. Margaret was a, a Nigerian woman of, uh, mother of four. And she had come to London and had, uh, was in a bedsit, a very tiny bedsit in, in Harlesden and I offered to, she was at the Brent HIV Centre and I offered to give her a lift home that, that evening and uh, she asked me to come in and I thought that I, you know, I, I shouldn't but I, I, I was persuaded and I did and all she wanted to do was to give me this card that said thank you you know, and I said, you know, Margaret, I've said to you, please don't give myself or my staff any, any thank yous. You know, this is what, what we do. And then I, I looked at her and I realised I just needed to, to shut the hell up. She had left her four children 
back in Nigeria, come to London to try and find, to set up home and a better life for them here. And she had nobody. So, you know, she had kind of adopted me as, 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 a, as a kind of a, a, a son, you know, um, while she was out of touch with her own. And she talked about her children and how wonderful they were and her, her, her ambitions for them, her aspirations for them. Four weeks later, Margaret was dead. You know, she never saw her children again. Um, and that happened a lot, uh, unfortunately. I also um, remember um, a man called Chris. Chris was a, a gay man who, um, like so many other beautiful gay men, was living with AIDS. And before he died, he, he wrote something that I thought was very poignant. And he wrote, it is courage, it is honor, it is integrity, it is bearing the unbearable, enduring the unendurable, and hoping in the face of hopelessness. It is the sweet pain of knowing that you are dying and the overwhelming sadness for those who will kiss you into their dreams. So I remember him and I remember the service users, adult and children. We had something called the the You and Me Kids Club, which was a Saturday club for, for the children who were born to or who, uh, who were all born to clients of the center. Uh, a couple of those children themselves had HIV AIDS. I also remember my brother. Uh, my brother Bunny and I, um, we didn't get on very well. I, I'm, I'm the youngest of five children. And um, he and my eldest brother, Leo, came over from Jamaica. I didn't even know I had brothers <laughs> until they kind of arrived. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was the youngest, and they picked at me a lot. Um, both my brothers had hemophilia. I didn't have hemophilia. Um, and like a large number of people with hemophilia, he contracted HIV through blood products and didn't know that he had HIV until he collapsed on the street uh, with pneumonia. And um, I, I, I was already in my position as head of HIV services and um, my phone rang, as it often did, from the hospital concerned to say that um, there's somebody here, Vernal, who said he's your brother. And, um, and because of who was calling me, um, I, 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 was, I was for a moment baffled. You know, I, said, I said, what's he doing there? Um, well, you know what we do, Vernal? And I, and I for a moment, couldn't think. You know, so I, I got into my car and I went to St Mary's. And, um, and there he was. Um, he was in as much shock as I was, perhaps even more, and he still didn't know precisely what the problem was. And a long story short, he had AIDS. Um, at the time, the pneumonia was one of those, one of those symptoms that was AIDS-defining. So by then, he'd already infected his fiancée, um, Val, and separately from my brother, my sister Joy, who um, carried the hemophilia, um, passed it on to her eldest son. And um, before we knew it, he too was diagnosed with HIV. And he was still at school. Um, so AIDS came home in a huge way. And my mother was a very religious woman. She objected vehemently to, to my sexuality when I came out to her. To her, it was a bereavement. I remember that day, you know, she wept and wailed as if I had died right before her eyes. And I, I just sat there 
um, watching my mother um, cry her heart out, not because I died, because obviously I hadn't, but because I was gay. And she, you know, by then, by that time, I was already working as a volunteer at a project called London Lighthouse uh, Project. And um, she, and I was getting some publicity about the work I was doing in the black press. And she was embarrassed enough to go to church. And um, in my family, in my immediate family, uh, I'm known as Ian. And um, that's because when I was born, my father had uh, a friend, a white friend, whose name was Ian. So to honor this friend, I was given this nickname. So by the time I joined school, went to infant school, that's when I discovered my name was actually Vernal. So that was another surprise. But um, the situation um, that affected um, the family with, with AIDS was quite shocking. And, you know, my mother went to church and her, one of her church friends said to her, is your, is your son Vernal? Is, is he, you know, the guy that's doing, working with, with those people? And my mother said, no. My son's name is Ian. That's not my son. So she came home, and I was still living with her at the time, and she was crying, and I, I thought that she, she, may, she may have had a road accident or something. So, you know, I said, you know, what's the matter? What's going on? She said, get away from me. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And then she said, I'm so ashamed of you and what you're doing, working with those people, that somebody asked me in church today if you were my son, and I said no. That night was my last night living there. Next morning, I packed my, my suitcase, and I went to a homelessness unit. <laughs> and I decided that um, I'd rather hit the road than live in a situation where I couldn't be myself and, um, and to work and, and to carry on the work that I know I needed to do. So anyway, um, there are real men, women and children behind the statistics. 22,000 deaths, as I mentioned, including my nephew, my brother and his fiancée. Um, and behind AIDS is, is a very cruel spectrum of illnesses. It's, it's about catastrophic weight loss, or it can involve that, dementia, blindness, skin lesions, incontinence. It, was, it wasn't unusual for grown men to have their bowels you know, released while you're talking to them you know, going out and finding themselves, taking a taxi home. Um, it was a very vicious illness. The, the fear and the stigma is something that, the, perhaps the fear is less than what it used to be, but it's my experience, um, as somebody who's obviously still concerned with this issue, that the stigma is still very much there. People with AIDS back in the 80s and 90s, they lost, many of them lost their jobs, they lost their families, they lost their friends, some of them lost their homes. In addition to that, they had to be dealing with their endless goodbyes to people that they loved and people like me and their loved ones attending their funerals. There was also immense courage back then. There was hope. There was a lot of love from within the gay community especially. The gay, com the gay community rose to the greatest challenge of their lives, of our lives. And at the same time, they were being vilified and spat at in the press and in public. My own client profile 
um, just to give you a sense of, of the gravity of talent that, that was affected and is still affected. My, my own client profile at Brent including, included teachers, a policeman, a scientist, authors, artists, lawyers, performers, business people, accountants, IT specialists, managers, caterers, students, healthcare staff. The youngest amongst them was born to an infected mother and he was 18 months old. The oldest was a, a gay man in his late, late 50s. They were all of different nationalities, income brackets, etc. Their accumulated skills and talents and accomplishments were incalculable. And yet they and the families who worried and mourned for them languished in undeserving shame to a world that seemed not to care. By 1991, there were about two to three million AIDS cases reported around the world. And the gay communities were particularly devastated. The Terence Higgins Trust, I'd like to believe everybody here has heard of the Terence Higgins Trust. You have? Who, who, who has? It's, right, most of you. Um, they were the first voluntary organization to get organized around this disease. And they, after a few years, they realized that there were so many people affected. They put on a candlelit vigil once a year in Covent Garden. And it was very dark, obviously. Um, and we would hold up candles in remembrance and support of people affected. Um, and that event was largely seen as a gay event, despite the increasing mortality rates in all communities. That event, that event, annual event, went unreported in the mainstream media. In casting AIDS as a gay disease, the fact that every gay man had parents, siblings, and other broken-hearted loved ones being left to grieve in the shadows of a hostile society, that point was overlooked. It was as if gay people just arrived on this planet and somehow brought this on themselves. The relentless homophobia in the media was at fever pitch, and its authors turned a deliberate and malicious blind eye to the human beings behind the rising AIDS statistics. The alarmist gay plague, as it was often referred to, those headlines sold newspapers. So, you know, when people like Rock Hudson and others um, um, were outed, if you like, um, that's the kind of headlines that we saw. The those affected were, were just not human. They were just gay sinners, as lots of the churches refer to, afflicted by a disease of their own making. Somehow gay men were deserving of our suffering, the fear, the pain, our tears, our last goodbyes, and our deaths. Our dashed hopes and dreams were destined to lie amongst the ashes of the cremation furnaces that would consume our broken bodies. A dignified death by the symptoms of old age were not to be our kind fate. Our early deaths outside of the safety of places like London Lighthouse and good hospitals like St Mary's um, were to be vilified and splashed across the press. Christians often say that Jesus Christ reached out to lepers. But in our struggle 
for life and dignity in death. Previously good Christians condemned and abandoned the dying and deemed them to be God's other, less deserving children. The stigma loomed oppressively large. I felt strongly that it had to be removed if people with AIDS were ever going to be able to live and die with dignity. I wanted to show the human face of the disease by putting on a national event that would enable the life of experiences of people with AIDS and HIV to be seen and heard. It was in, within the context of, that I've just described that I came up with the idea of an event called Reach Out and Touch. Am I able to show, this, show these slides? I'm not going to show all of them. Um, it was a... I don't know if, if the lights get in the way of this or if you can see it okay. Um, but basically, I wasn't sure whether... Um, anybody else would show up for this event. But I, but I felt that I needed to say something about it, and I talked about it in the press, and uh, a celebrity who still wants to remain um, nameless decided that he would give me all the money I wanted to, to, to put this event on. And, and on the day that I turned up at Hyde Park... Which is, which is where this event started. Um, and, I, and I had to ask, you know, where are all these people here for my, for my event? And the answer was yes. And I was absolutely amazed. People had come from all parts of the United Kingdom and beyond. Um, from Scotland, from Wales, all parts of England, from Europe and America. Um, the girlfriend of, of, of an enormous celebrity, a superstar at the time, came to see me and she said that her partner would very much like to be part of, of this event. And... Um, you know, we asked people to bring flowers in support and unity, and, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, this was a choir that we um, got from a church in, in Harrow. Um, and there were certain songs that they refused to sing, um, but the songs that they did sing included songs like Lean On Me, Reach Out, and Touch Somebody's Hand, etc. Um, the superstar who wanted to come to the event... Um, and her partner, this is her partner, Robin Crawford, her name is Whitney Houston. And I was elated that Whitney, who could have been anywhere else in the world that she wanted to be, decided to be with us that day. And um, the downside of it was that I was not allowed to say anything about it in advance. So, so she, she, wanted, she said she wanted to be there like everybody else. She had lost people to AIDS. And um, she didn't want her, in her words, her crazy fans ruining the event. So all the people who showed up at Hyde Park were there anyway. Um, and obviously when Whitney Houston walked out, they went crazy. Um, and she gave a speech um, about finding a cure and the need to find a cure. And I'll say something about where we are with our treatments and, and um, elusive cure in a, in a second. At one point, after she gave her speech, and I think we've got a, a short two-minute video, um, which we'll show in a second, um, of, of this day. It's only two minutes long. But she jumped off the stage, and there was these children at the front. And suddenly she was... Absolutely, all you could see of Whitney was her hat. Yeah. So then um, her bodyguard, her real bodyguard, um, <laughs> jumped up off the stage to try and rescue her. Um, you know, and it was an amazing moment. And 
some of these pictures, given you know Whitney's fate, you know if we knew that her fate was going to be what it was, I think we would have held on to her a bit tighter that day. Um, there was lots of press, um, lots of TV coverage of it. I think the press thought Princess Diana was going to be um, the surprise person. And Princess Diana did a fantastic job, for people who don't know, um, you know shaking the hands of people with AIDS without gloves. Um, she single-handedly um, did a fantastic job in trying to remove the stigma. Um, and people of all nationalities marched with us from Hyde Park to Trafalgar Square. Um, the police estimate estimated that there were between four and 6,000 people at Reach Out and Touch on this procession. I could not see the end of the wade of, of people. Um, and as you can see, I, th I can't remember what, what uh, road that is, but um, it just goes on and on. I could not see the, the back of, of, of this um, procession, very dignified procession, where um, people carried all sorts of, of banners about human rights for people with HIV and AIDS and removing the stigma. Um, it was dark by the time we got to Trafalgar Square, and you know, we, we laid a whole carpet of flowers, covered Trafalgar Square in flowers, and um, people hoisted flowers in the air um, and on nets that were hauled up um, in a wall of flowers. There were some panels from the quilt there as well. Um, Later on, Dion Warwick, um, the following year, came and, and formally launched the Brent HIV Centre. And, um, and just to show, again, just as a further reminder of how HIV didn't discriminate, um, she came to give a speech, and halfway through the speech, she started crying. And I thought, that, I thought she was you know, just going to be able to get herself together and carry on. And, and before I knew it, she had crumbled into this heaving mass of convulsing tears. And I realized that HIV had become very personal for her as well. Um, can we quickly just show the, the video, please? And then we can, um, do you mind? Yeah. I can do that, it's only two minutes. <clears throat> And then I'm just going to talk about where we are today with um, treatments and current stats. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. Choir delivered the central message of the gathering while speakers underlined the theme of removing the stigma of HIV and AIDS. We don't want special treatment or favours or privileges. We want to know that in dealing with our personal and private tragedies and triumphs against this disease, our fellow human beings will support and care for us as they would naturally want to do for anyone with a life-threatening illness. The singer Whitney Houston reportedly donated £20,000 towards the cost of the event, which covered expenses more than twice. The extra money will be used for extra publicity. Sadly, there is a stigma associated with those afflicted. Even as we speak, it is sweeping away our children, our families, our loved ones. Our world must, we must continue through research to work to finding a cure. The event attracted messages of support from public figures including the Princess of Wales. Hundreds of people attending were HIV positive or had AIDS. As a march began through central London, some of the campaigners were hit by the emotion of the gathering. Earlier, the choir had sung a number especially written for the event by a person with HIV. It was entitled, I'm Alive. But they ended with the song they'd begun with. Make this world a 
Tim Marshall, Sky News. I'm not sure why it was skipping, but it skipped a bit. Thank you very much. So, um, where are we now today? Thankfully, the AIDS war years and the conveyor belt of death and dying that I mentioned earlier seem to be over. I think it was 1996, treatments became much more successful in, in the book, I, everything I've mentioned, by the way, is in the book, including lots and lots of photographs from, the, from that day and, and other issues. Um, 1996, treatments became much more successful. Before that, getting an HIV, AIDS, an HIV diagnosis seemed to be a death sentence. I had friends who traveled to all parts of the world to try and find something that would save their lives. Um, again, I, I talk about one particular friend in the book who, who went to San Francisco. He could afford to do that. Um, he realized that waiting for a treat, successful treatment or a cure um, would probably um, result in his demise. So he went looking for the cure. Ultimately, he came back and died uh, at London Lighthouse. Um, anyway, treatments became much more successful in 1996. And it's, even though people still can still die, obviously, with HIV, as I mentioned at the beginning, people are clearly still dying. Um, I, I was, found myself caught in a, some, some kind of a time warp, you know, when I realized that, hey, you know, funerals have stopped. You know, I kept expecting to hear about people dying and it, and it wasn't happening. And I was obviously very grateful for that. We've moved on. Um, the difficulty we have today, particularly in the gay community, and I, and I say this, that I don't envy the work of organizations like the Terence Higgins Trust, Gay Men Fighting AIDS, and others, um, because of the success of treatments, people, and you know, not just gay men, but um, I'm going to talk about gay men because I, I am a gay man. And um, anyway, the point is, is that a lot of gay men have stopped using condoms. And as a result, um, and this statistic says it all. In 2011, 6,364 men were newly diagnosed with HIV. Gay men were newly diagnosed with HIV. That's compared to 2,093 um, reported in 1998. So infections are on the rise. And I know that um, one of my friends and colleagues, you know, has, in the work that he's done, he's, his work is verifying, I think, what, I, what I'm saying, that the stats are on, on the rise and that um, there's a need for us to rediscover safer sex and the mighty but simple condom. Um, it does save lives. Um, a lot of the younger gay men who look stunningly beautiful, you know, get kind of bored with people like me. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's not, not him again, is it? Coming out talking about HIV and AIDS. Um, they would much prefer to listen to Lady Gaga, um, Miley Cyrus, and all these other people who I've never heard of are much more Dinah Ross and Gloria Gaynor and that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, what they fail to appreciate is, I mean, what they do appreciate really is that they are unlikely to die of HIV-related symptoms as long as they take their daily pill. They can
cannot relate, unless they see something like this, and um, very few people have seen it, um, they have no idea about the awaiting reality of a lifelong imprisonment of pills, clinics, and of course, the ongoing stigma. Once infected, they will suddenly notice the biting to the point ads on gay contact websites by people seeking sex who proudly state, I am disease free and you must be too. Most of all, they will have to absorb the fact that a failure to take their daily pill will likely result in the prompt or slow demise of the beautiful man in the bathroom mirror and, and, it, and signal the onset of AIDS, which hasn't been cured. It's just been suppressed, if you like. As for me, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely of the safer sex crowd. I think orgasms are wonderful things, you know, but I don't want to die for one. And I don't want to get an irre 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 irreversible diagnosis for one. Um, and I think that there needs to be greater intervention to turn this challenge around. I'm glad that we've got successful treatments. Of course I am. But getting HIV just because of a reckless night, um, it really isn't worth it. So the other book that I've written is called Safer Sex Portfolio, which is on Amazon. And it's all about safer sex. You know, my worry about that book is that it might sell better than this other one. You know, that, that's my worry. Um, the, my message to young gay men is tell him no condom, no party in the rare. And if he says you're a bore, show him the door. I decided to write this book because I felt very strongly that the experience had to be captured, and I hope that I've done that in this book and a lot more. Um, I felt a lot better once it was released. I felt that film, I'm trying to remember the name of it, where um, the little boy says, I, I see dead people. Six you, cents. Six cents. Um, I, I, I just kept seeing all these faces of people who I worked with or who I knew personally, and I, and I just felt like I had to tell their story as well as mine. And that's what I've done in God's Other Children, and I hope that you'll give it your time. I have finished saying what I think I need to say, and I suppose it's questions or something. Shall I come and sit down or shall I stand here? <laughs> okay. Thank you very, very much, Vernal, for that very, very... the very poignant message that you shared with us this evening and I hope that everyone in this room goes away with quite a lot to reflect on. Um, I was particularly touched by the personal um, accounts and experiences that you gave um, about HIV and AIDS um, and it particularly touched me because um, I actually lost a, a very beautiful and dear cousin to um, this vicious illness in 1999 so um, yes it resonated with me quite a lot. Um, we are now going to have some questions, hopefully. Um, so if you could introduce yourself and um, state your question very clearly. Do we have a roving mic? We don't. So if you just say your question, I will try to repeat it as best as I can. Well, 
obviously everyone's very moved. Um, yeah, I'm James. I'm um, the network coordinator for the, L um, the LGBT staff network at LSE. And I just had a question about, um, well, you mentioned that in 1996 that these new wave of uh, treatment came in, which um, lengthened life expectancy mm. of um, people living with HIV AIDS. Um, I was just wondering whether you noticed that any occult when the sort of cultural shift happened between the idea of HIV AIDS being sort of a gay play and sort of later ideas about it being something that affects everybody and well, whether that still, there's a lot of work to do there still. I think, I think that there's still work to do, um, but I, I get a sense that it's um, not as scary the idea of HIV AIDS any, any, anymore um, and that there's less hysteria about it in, in the um, straight, if you like, communities. That said, it was only yesterday or the day before um, I'm, I'm a, I, 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 there's a, a TV channel that I, that I speak on um, and one of the things that they were asking me about was Uganda and you, you may have heard in the news that um, they've decided to outlaw homosexuality. Um, originally, originally, they had the death penalty in there for anybody um, who is gay would be subject, supposed to be subject to this death penalty. You now get life imprisonment instead. You know, so if there's um, touching of anybody of the same sex in a way that's Erotic uh, um, or perceived as such, um, you could find yourself in prison. Um, you've got to report anybody that is um, known to be gay, etc. My point is, is that also you're not allowed to provide a service to anybody who's gay. So already, I, I, I can imagine what's going to happen with HIV if people can't go for services or people are afraid to, to, to provide services because they know they could be imprisoned. So it's, that kind of madness is the extreme, but it was only in October that I had a meeting with the High Commissioner for Jamaica and um, had a discussion with her about the ongoing um, killings of gay people there. Um, and again, whilst they don't have uh, laws as draconian as the one I've just mentioned, you still get 10 years in prison in Jamaica. And in fact, out of the 53 or 54 Commonwealth nations, homosexuality is illegal in at least 42 of them. You know, so, um, and my point, James, is that um, in as, as far as we've come on this journey, there's still work to do. And, you know, obviously Russia, you know, it's not just a black thing, as I, as, I, as I was saying to the Voice newspaper this week. You know, you've got other countries um, who are just as ignorant, you know. So I think that we're going to have potentially uh, uh, another explosion of HIV. So there's ignorance in the straight community here and abroad. Um, I think that we've got to be in the driver's seat on this issue and not be a passenger. We've got to lead people towards understanding and education around HIV and AIDS. In my view, it's a human virus. It's not one that's specific about who it infects. It, it's, it's the conduct, the behaviour that lets HIV in, not your sexuality. Long-winded answer, but that's it. Okay. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, in the early 80s, back then, when so many people were dying, all organizations, from Black Disabled People Association, we saw the terrorist signals joining that group. So I, I realized some of the stuff that you're saying. But now, do you think it's time that we have another TV campaign about this? Would this be a good time to push this forward again, based on the, the, the gap in the deaths of young people and this new episode like that? I certainly think so. No, no, I was just going to summarise the question for the purpose of the podcast. Um, just 
the question was to ask whether um, we will, whether it's time to have another sort of TV or publicity campaign around um, HIV and AIDS in this time. I, I, I certainly think we can't have enough publicity. You know, there needs to be more. Um, it's kind of disappeared completely off television, you know. Um, but I think most of all, we need to have more of these, you know, in churches, in mosques, you know, community centres, sports halls, even barbershops. Not that I go to barbershops very often, you know, but I, I think that you, you know, we need to go to all the places where there are people and have a discussion. We need to, we need to get rid of all the hang-ups about sex and talk about it. Talking about sex saves lives. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know. Um, so, so, yes, I think more stuff on TV, but most of all, more people having discussions about it amongst them, themselves, in their families, amongst their friends, and in, in the places I've just, uh, I've just described. Um, I'm Andrew Webb, I'm LGBT ambassador and deputy secretary of the school. And part of your billing was, uh, the multifaceted billing was a Christian activist, I think. And you, you mentioned your mother, who was a religious person's reaction when you told me mm -hmm. um, And I wondered, um, do you perceive any change in attitude amongst Christian churches towards people with HIV? Just to summarise the question, um, has there been a perception of um, a change perception in, in uh, among um, the Christian community um, around HIV and AIDS and homosexuality? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I describe myself as a, as a gay Christian man. Um, he's also a dad. Um, we have a lot of work to do still in, in, in all religious, religious groups. Um, there's been some movement, but I can remember a time when we were condemned by the church, you know, and, um, you know, the Bible was used as a weapon. Originally, the, the graphic on, this, on, this, on the book had a Bible with blood coming out of it. And I don't know what, you know, this is the, the graphic that's on the book at the moment. Um, and, and that was to, alluded to the title, God's Other Children, and my experience in the 80s and 90s of um, being rejected by, by the church. And, and back at that time, I was an atheist. You know, I was so angry with the hate from, from church. And if anybody you know, reads the Bible. I mean, I don't read it um, religiously. I know bits of it. And I was saying to Carolyn earlier that the Bible I have was given to me by Gloria Gaynor, the, the disco singer. <laughs> she, you know, she is a very religious person, as was Donna Summer. And, um, and we've had some discussions about um, HIV AIDS and, and homosexuality. Um, I think there's got to be much more courage in churches where they are honest to say, you know, I've got a member of my family who's gay, I've got a member of my family who's HIV, and just be honest about it. You know, to have ambassadors of God um, dishing out hate on, on, a, on a Sunday is, is unacceptable. So I think it's got better. But if you look at places around the world, be it the Russias or the Ugandas or the Nigerias or the Jamaicas and all these other places I can list, the Bible and or the interpretation of the Bible is still used as a weapon and HIV is still perceived as um, a result of homosexuals being loose in the world. So I, I, I don't know if I've answered your question other than to say that my journey has led me back to Christianity somehow and um, and I and I get a sense of um, family and relationship with God and the God that I pray to um, is about love you know but if I'm really honest and I talk about it in, in the book there's a, a chapter in the book called the Bible and homosexuality um, I had to be really honest you know the Bible is not kind to 
mitigate people. You know, it talks about um, all sorts of things about gay people, and, and I give my own interpretation of, of the Bible, Solomon Gomorrah, and as a as a as a as a father, you know, what we hear about um, Solomon Gomorrah as an example is is is, is about Lot. And, and, and him having two angels in his, in his house who are going to be attacked by this, this ravenous sexual mob outside. And, and Lot offers his virgin daughters instead, you know, please leave these men alone, have, have my virgin daughters. No father with integrity would do that. And yet when you hear about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what you hear about, that gay people were wanting to rape these angels. Um, so anyway, there's lots of, of things that I, I, that I tackle in the book because it needs to be said, and it's a question that I, I do get asked. How can you be gay and be a Christian with any integrity? You know, why do you believe in this fairy God? As I say, it's a journey that I'm on and it's led me back to this place and I'm very comfortable in it at the moment. Hi, uh, my name is Roberto, I'm a PhD student here. In your talk, you mentioned two facts. So on one side, you mentioned the, the lower concern with uh, HIV and AIDS nowadays. And on the other side, you mentioned the fact that there is a lot of stigma and phobia among gay people of uh, HIV-positive people. So how do we con reconcile these two facts? And is it possible that the cause is not better treatments available, but the fact that HIV is no more a gay disease? Okay. Um, just to summarise, um, the sort of distinction or the marrying of, of the concept of the stigma around HIV and AIDS and also um, what we're actually experiencing today. Um, and could you just repeat the, the last part? So, yes, so my question is about why uh, are people at the same time less scared of HIV but more scared of HIV positive people? Okay. And uh, whether, the, whether the answer to this is the fact that gay people don't see HIV as a gay disease anymore. Okay. I think that was picked up. Um, well, I'm, I'm very concerned about what's going on in the gay community. You know, there, there's... Um, and, and, you know, I should, you know, say, you know, preface that by saying not everybody is going out and having rampant, you know, uh, unsafe sex. Um, but there's clearly, you know, with the, with the stats that I mentioned earlier, an issue there. Um, some of the treatments, and I know that um, Lee is, perhaps, is, is much better qualified than I to, to talk about the effectiveness of, of modern treatments. He's, he's the, the manager of, of a testing site in London. Um, I think people have become complacent and relaxed about... HIV in the gay community because they know they're not necessarily going to die. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was a catastrophic diagnosis, absolutely catastrophic. And I, I talk about a number of people who I was around when they were diagnosed. Um, so, so I think that we've got to be more proactive in trying to get people to understand that having HIV and being, getting treatment, there are still significant health consequences. Things that happen to your liver, things that happen to your face, things that happen to your body generally over the long term that are not, are not good for you. Um, I think that, um, in my view, when somebody says, oh, somebody's got HIV AIDS, people do think gay still. They think the person must be gay or, or something, you know. Um, people very rarely think that it's a heterosexual person or a child, etc. So I, what I've tried to do in the book, and even though the book is non-fiction, obviously it talks about real people, um, it does talk about men, women and children, but the majority of people it talks about are gay people. You know, um, I don't know if I've answered your, your, your question. So, I mean, I, had, um, I have this idea that people, so while at the same time they are less concerned with HIV, as you would say, and they are more concerned, uh, more scared of uh, HIV positive people, mm -hmm. at least looking from private or whatever mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So, whether the reason was that actually they think that HIV is less of a gay disease, 
so they uh, they engage in uh, less safe sex because they don't think it's a it's a gay disease anymore. But then they are scared of. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, um, I'm I'm horrified by some of those those adverts. You know, like a lot of other gay men, I used to have a profile too. Obviously, my very sexy pictures, you know, were on there. You know, but um, if that's what they were. Um, and I used to see those, those kind of adverts, you know, saying, you know, from people saying, I'm disease free and you better be too. Um, obviously, you know, if you're educated about HIV, you'll know that you can't look at somebody and tell whether they have HIV or not. Maybe people, you know, like Lee, myself, maybe might be able to think that, you know, depending on, what, on, on, on um, what's being presented. But um, there is, a, there is, I wouldn't call it a hatred, but it, it's, a, um, I, I just think it's ignorance. You know, um, part of the song, Reach Out and Touch, is um, his shoes can fit your feet. You know, so as, as, as those of us who are HIV, who are not directly affected by HIV today, may find ourselves HIV positive tomorrow. So, you know, we need to, to not be judgmental. It's perfectly safe, as, as I hope we all know, to have intimate relations with somebody who's HIV positive. And, and I think it's just ignorant and, and pretty nasty to, um, to, to, to make people with HIV feel ostracized and like, a, like an alien community. They are our brothers and sisters, and we need to include them and not exclude them by being mean and nasty. You know, but you always get ignorant people. You know, facilities and events like this hopefully help. Thank you. Um, this gentleman spoke really loudly, so I think it was picked up. And I could, could I ask if everyone does the same? Because I don't want to not summarise your questions properly. I'll try. Um, <laughs> so I'm Stephen. I'm a, a student here at the um, First of all, thank you for a beautiful um, talk. Um, I, was, I was really touched for a number of reasons, also because um, it resonates a lot with me as well as um, I had a partner for a long time that, that was positive, um, and I'm sure that I share that with many other here, even though we, we know it or not. Um, so it's, it's kind of follow-up on the whole screening process that many people do that we assume that people um, are um, disease-free based on, I don't know, looks, age, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and um, how, can, how can we educate people you know, about the fact that a lot of people um, don't know that they are um, mm -hmm. positive and transmit that way? Mm -hmm. um, many people do know, but they are, are scared to tell, obviously, with, with all this, this, this thing mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so this, this under communication that we do, um, about this, how, how can we kind of, um, deal with that? You know, I, I think it's, sorry, Karen, do you want to? Um, we've got a lot of work to do, and, and I, I, I was about to write to, um, the Terence Higgins Trust, GMFA, and 56 Dean Street to see whether, um, we could all get together and have some kind of a seminar or a conference where we could just have a look at where we are to date and see who should be doing what, you know, over the next 18 months, four years, etc., to educate people in the gay community and beyond about, about the current state of affairs, you know, both in the way of treatment and stigma and... Um, and the consequences of, of, of living with HIV and, and the pill. And there's the, the pills you can take, um, prophylaxis in advance, you know, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure. So if you want to apparently heighten your, your chances of being able to fight off the virus, if you take these pills in advance of getting infected, the idea is that if you do become infected, um, that um, you uh, hopefully can fight off the virus, um, but there's also post-infection um, treatment as well, so I think 
within a matter of hours, I don't know, perhaps Chris uh, Lee can say, but you've got to take this pill again to try and deal with the virus if you were infected but you know the point is is that we need to have some kind of event that brings everybody who's interested in this together to come to some kind of agreement because as well as as people um having unsafe sex in their private lives there's this whole bear backing industry of of porn you know um they tell me you know, I just want to make it clear that I, I don't know, um, you know, where, where people um, have unsafe sex um, for entertainment, for, for adult entertainment. And, um, and I know, I think it's California, um, somewhere where they've banned the production of barebacking videos. Obviously, people will continue to, to, to do that if they want to. But if I had my own way, you know, um, it would be uh, illegal to to sell to sell things like that openly. You know, we can't stop people from making these things if they if they want to make them. But I think we we have to get our message straight. You know, we have to say either it's okay to promote barebacking, which is unsafe sex, um, or that you know we're not going to encourage it. Somebody might say to me, as, as I talk about it in the book, where I had this argument with somebody who was selling their back videos. Um, well, you know, Vernal, if, if, if people are watching these videos for entertainment, they're not going to go out and, and do it, you know, in their personal lives. I don't know. I just know that it would be good for us to talk about it as, as, as people who are concerned, professionals, and, and find and agree on certain messages about what we will support and what we won't support and who's who needs more education do we need targeting of because if you look at the statistics with black gay men they're, they're slightly disproportionate and the same thing happened 20 years ago when Diane, Princess Diana and Whitney was calling for a cure um, we had a disproportionate number of black people being diagnosed then too. So, so we've got to have more communication um, at all levels. I think uh, LSE has done a, a great job tonight, but it needs to be ongoing. And they, uh, people need to know where they can find information. And obviously places like the Terence Higgins Trust, their website, GMFA and others that have gone out of my head, National AIDS Trust, um, Positively Women, I think is still going, if I'm not mistaken. Um, where you can find out information, but we've got to keep talking and we've got to keep campaigning. And in addition to safer sex, we've got to have a look at why people are doing this. You know, why why somebody choosing not to use a condom when they could use one? You know, um, so I, I suspect that some of it's to do with self-esteem, and uh, some of it's drugs and booze and people going out getting out of their heads. But some of it is, you know, he looks good. And I, and, I, and I think that somebody who looks that good can't possibly have HIV, you know, so I'm, gonna, I'm, just, gonna, I'm just gonna take a chance on this. You know, so I think there's all sorts of reasons, but I, I, I really, you know, would welcome some kind of event where people can get together, different agencies, to, to come up with um, a, a joint message on, on these issues. Are there any more questions? Well, thank you very much, Fernal, and I hope that you will all now join me in saying thank you as well in the appropriate way. Thank you.